Our text, Matthew 19, verses 1 through 10, let us now hear the word of God. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We do ask for understanding. We need your help and your guidance that we might interpret the word of God rightly. Please help me to do that. Please help your people to do that today. We need your help also to apply the word of God rightly. Help us to apply what we learn today in this passage of Scripture to our hearts, to our lives, to our relationships. We pray these things for your glory and for our good, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that is very clear when a famous person or someone who is notable for some reason gets a divorce from their spouse nowadays is that when the announcement is made in the news media, on the internet, wherever it's made, you can almost guarantee, you can almost count on the fact that that announcement will be obscured by the language they use. The language they use to describe what they are doing, separating from their spouse and pursuing a divorce will, in most cases, be intentionally obscure. Why? Because many times people want to present a particular face to the world and you hear things like irreconcilable differences. You hear things like we've grown apart. You hear things like we're no longer in love with each other. And I always think it interesting that these two people who are going to get a divorce, it's like popular nowadays for them to say, we still love each other. We're still going to be friends. We're still going to you know, have a great relationship. And I wonder, how's that possible? <laughs> Is that really true? If that were true, then why are you engaged in pursuing divorce? 
Well, what are the valid reasons for a divorce? Jesus forces us to think about that here in this passage of Scripture, Matthew 19, 1 through 10. We began this passage by looking at Jesus transitioning from Judea to Galilee, or sorry, from Galilee to Judea, it's the opposite of what I just said. Jesus is now headed in the direction of Jerusalem, where he will be crucified. As he has done this, as he has made this transition, transition, great multitudes of people follow him. He again heals the multitudes of their diseases and afflictions, showing his mercy, his compassion. But the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they are testing him. And they come and test him with a question concerning divorce. And you see that there in verse 3. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? There was a debate in the first century between rival rabbinical schools about the legitimacy of uh, divorce. How should we interpret Deuteronomy 24? Does that give reason to divorce your wife for any cause? Or should it be restricted to a certain thing that legitimizes divorce? Well, Jesus responded, if we could just summarize his response by saying, Jesus takes us back to the foundational standard of Genesis. It's not Deuteronomy 24 that sets the tone, is Genesis 1 and 2 that set the tone for the marriage relationship. And God's clear design and purpose for marriage was for one man and one woman to come together in a lifelong covenantal union, that they're to be faithful to one another for their entire lifetime. Now, the Pharisees followed this up with another question in verse 7. Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? That's a question about Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. So their, their response is, well, Jesus, if this is the standard, if what you say is right, then why did Moses say what he said in Deuteronomy 24? Jesus responds by saying, verse 8, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Moses was not giving them license to get rid of their wife for any reason. Whether that was she's not as pretty as she used to be, or she burnt the biscuits, or whatever the case may be. No, this piece of legislation, Deuteronomy 24, was due to, was a permission due to the sinfulness of men. That men were acting sinfully in how they treated their wives, and Moses was regulating that in Deuteronomy 24. Now, Jesus goes on, he continues... In verse 9, and this is where we want to pick it up this week, we want to think about divorce, remarriage, and adultery. The first thing that Jesus does is say in verse 9, and this is the main thrust of what Jesus is saying in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So if we can summarize what Jesus just said there, he said, those of you who are engaged in this kind of willy-nilly, divorce your wife and remarry someone else, you're actually committing adultery. You're actually breaking the seventh commandment by illegitimately divorcing your spouse and then marrying another. Now we're going to come back to that, but what we want to do first is we want to think about what is known as the exception clause that Jesus gives in the midst of this statement. And it's right there in the middle of the verse, except 
for sexual immorality. Jesus here makes an exception to the general rule that he states concerning divorce and remarriage being adulterous. And so we need to think about this exception. Now, the first thing to notice is this is a repeat teaching from Jesus. Keep your finger here in Matthew 19 and go back to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. And many moons ago, we were in Matthew 5, and we considered verses 31 to 32, where Jesus says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So what you see here in Matthew 19 is a repeat teaching from the Lord Jesus. And you can find it in other places in the other Gospels as well. Jesus is reiterating what he has stated previously. Now let's focus on the exception here. What is the exception? The exception is sexual immorality. That's how the New King James renders it. If you have the King James, it says fornication. If you have another translation, it may be something like immorality. This is the Greek word porneia. And we get our English word pornography from the Greek word porneia. What is porneia? Porneia is a broad term that encompasses all manner of sexual immorality. So you can put a number of different things under the heading of porneia. It would include, for example, fornication, what we typically refer to as fornication, two people engaged illegitimately in a sexual relationship outside the covenant bond of marriage. So this is the exception. Sexual immorality provides the exception to the general rule that to divorce and remarry is to commit the sin of adultery. Now, some are uncomfortable with that for various reasons, and I don't have time today, nor is this primarily a, like an all-encompassing study about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, you probably know all sorts of views about this. And you've been in different churches, and you've heard different preachers, and you've interacted with different pastors who have different viewpoints about divorce and remarriage. I cannot cover all of that today. So if we get done today and you're like, Pastor, you didn't cover X, <laughs> well, there's a reason for that. Maybe I should have. But I can't do it all today, so please don't fault me for not covering every last piece of ground when it comes to this topic. It is a big topic. But one of the things that sometimes people get confused about or they will use to negate what Jesus says here is they will look to Mark and Luke and say, well, Mark and Luke don't have this exception clause, but it's here in Matthew. And so what are we to make of that? Well, Mark, Mark 10, verses 11 to 12, it says, 
So he said to them, Jesus, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Or Luke 16, 18. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, some people look at those passages of Scripture and conclude that divorce and remarriage is always wrong, either with the exception of death or no exception. But we can't do that. Why can't we do that? Because Matthew 19.9 is here. And we can't use Mark and Luke to negate Matthew 19.9. Our responsibility is to harmonize by the grace of God and put it all together and make sure we believe not only Mark 10 and Luke 16, but also Matthew 19.9 as well. And when we do that, I believe it is clear that Jesus is here providing an exception to the general rule that legitimizes divorce and subsequent remarriage for sexual immorality, which would include adultery and would include other things as well. And so let's think now about legitimate divorce. Legitimate divorce. The Westminster Confession of Faith has an entire chapter on marriage and divorce. And let me read you a portion of that. Quote, Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments, unduly to put asunder those whom God is, hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery, there's exception number one, or such willful desertion, there's exception number two, or grounds number two for divorce, as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate, is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case, end quote. So the Westminster Confession of Faith there, I believe, is seeking to look to the biblical truths like Matthew 19.9, and as we'll see in a moment, 1 Corinthians 7, that provide legitimate grounds for a legitimate divorce and also, I believe, a legitimate remarriage. So let's think about the grounds or reasons for legitimate divorce. Number one is adultery or more broadly, sexual immorality. That's what we have here in front of us in Matthew 19.9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. This means that sexual infidelity provides a basis, a grounds, a legitimate grounds for a spouse to divorce their partner and seek subsequent remarriage should they choose to do so. Now, it doesn't mean that a spouse is forced to divorce their wife or their husband if they are unfaithful to them, if they commit adultery or some sexual infidelity. You're not forced to do that. You can seek to work on it. You can forgive by God's grace and seek to mend the fracture that has been introduced by infidelity. And many couples do that, and they survive it, and they go on to be faithfully married to one another. 
But if someone is unfaithful to their spouse, the offended party has the right, I believe, on the basis of Matthew 19.9, to divorce and remarriage. That's grounds number one. Grounds number two is desertion. Now turn from Matthew 19 to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, we can't deal with everything the Apostle Paul says here. But we do want to hit some key highlights. Let's begin at verse 10. Now, to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Now, let's stop there for just a moment. What is Paul saying? Paul is, I believe clarifying that what he is getting ready to say is not new with him. He didn't invent it. What he is going to speak here or utter is the word of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. That's what he means by, yet not I, but the Lord. Okay, let's continue. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. That is the standard. We are not to seek after divorce. Now, Paul here in Corinth is dealing with mixed marriages. You've got people who are believers and unbelievers, and they're in a marriage relationship. So what are we supposed to do with that? Paul is counseling the people of the church of Corinth about how to deal with this. And here is the general principle that Paul is deriving from Jesus, a wife is not to depart from her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Uh, verse 12. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say. Now again, let's pause there. Paul is not saying, what I'm getting ready to give you is uninspired. <laughs> okay? Paul is not saying, hey, I've just checked my inspiration at the door, and I'm just going to give you, you know, some random advice. No, that's not what Paul means. What Paul means is, Jesus did not directly address this. I, as his apostle, will now address another type of situation. All right, what is it? Verse 12 again, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Now, some may have thought in first century Corinth, hey, I'm in this unclean relationship before God because I'm a believer and I'm married to this person who isn't a believer. What should I do? I, sh I should get out of this. I should get out of this relationship because this is like defiling me, tainting me. But that's not true, as Paul will go on to point out. What are they to do? If, you, if you're in Corinth in the first century and you believe in Christ, but your spouse doesn't, be faithful to them. Be faithful to the covenant that you have with them. Don't divorce them because they're not a believer. Okay, hopefully that is clear. Verse 13. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. There's the other side of the coin. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Okay, what did Paul just say? Paul says you ought to seek 
to keep the relationship intact, even though your spouse is an unbeliever. But if your spouse wants to go, you're not to try to force them to stay. You ought to seek to persuade them and encourage them to stay. Do all that you can, yes. But if the unbeliever refuses to stay and thus deserts the marriage relationship, abandons their spouse, then the Christian is to let them go. They are not under bondage in such cases. Now, there's a great deal of controversy over what that means. What exactly does that mean? In bondage to what? I can't go into all of that today. But I believe that what Paul is prescribing here is that the believer is not in a, in a state of continuing obligation to the spouse who has left, who has abandoned them. They are now free from that obligation. Why? Because their spouse has deserted them. Which would then mean, in addition to that, that they're free to remarry. If you can think about it this way, you've got a believer who needs to be married, but their spouse is an unbeliever and they've, they've abandoned them. What is the believer supposed to do? Well, according to Paul, they're not under bondage in such a case, which I believe means they're free to remarry. Why would I say that? Now let's go back to verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain, even as I am. Paul holds up the single life as a good thing. If you can stay as a single person, as a celibate person, and be pure and faithful and serve the Lord, then do so. Because you're not going to be, you know, weighed down with all the responsibilities of a family. You're going to be free to serve the Lord in ways that others are not. But that's not the end of Paul's counsel, verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what is the believer who, through no fault of their own, has been abandoned by their spouse? What are they to do? Now, some would say, well, they're to remain single, and God will help them. That's the conclusion that some draw. But in light of what I just read, this person's condition has not changed. Why did they get married in the first place? They got married in the first place because they wanted to, and they were not able to exercise self-control. And so God had provided that proper outlet through the conjugal union of marriage. Well, if that has not changed now that this person has been deserted by their spouse then it is not good for them to remain unmarried. And it is good for them to marry, else they would not be able to exercise self-control. Thus, Paul's teaching on desertion here in 1 Corinthians 7 provides the second grounds for divorce and subsequent remarriage. Now, with that being said, again, please remember, divorce is not the goal and we read in the scripture reading this morning where the Lord says, I hate divorce. He does. Why? Because someone is at fault. Someone has sinned. Now, you may be the innocent party in the divorce, and there are innocent parties. 
in divorce, and you ought not feel guilty if you are the innocent party. But we all know, hopefully, from the standard of Genesis 1 and 2, that the goal is not divorce, and we ought not be looking for loopholes to get out of the vows that we have made to our spouse. Now, hopefully it's obvious, I'm sure it's obvious to you, that today, in many, many cases, people are not getting divorces for legitimate reasons. In some cases, they are. There's been adultery or they've been deserted. But in other cases, and I would say in the majority of cases, probably, the reasons for their divorce are illegitimate. What is the number one reason why people in America get divorced? If we had to summarize it, now I don't have any stats for you, this is just off the top of my head, but I think probably the number one reason for divorce is unhappiness. The two people or one of the people in the marriage is unhappy for some reason. And because they're unhappy, they pursue divorce. And American law, unfortunately, gives them the ability to do so. Some have been married for many years, and over those years, the disappointments, hard feelings, sins have piled up. And they've been unhappy for a long time, and they want to be happy, and they want out. What's the root of that? It's that unhappiness. Now, newsflash for you. If you're married, or if you're thinking about being married, or you haven't been married very long, and you're still in the period of pixie dust, you will be unhappy at some point. At some point, you will be dissatisfied with your spouse. Now, I don't recommend you go tell her that today, necessarily or him, but at some point you'll be unhappy. And all God's people said, amen. Why is that? It's because you're a sinner. It's because she's a sinner. And at some point you're going to be unhappy. And that unhappiness may be real and hard to deal with, but that is not grounds for divorce. Now, to many people in America today, it most certainly is. Why? Because happiness is the most important thing. If you're not happy, honey, get out of that relationship. That's, what, that's the counsel that most people would get. But you're not going to get that counsel from the Bible. Are there legitimate reasons for divorce? Yes, I believe so. According to Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. But does that mean that we can do it for any cause whatsoever? No, it does not. And we have to ask ourselves, are we acting contrary to Scripture in pursuing a divorce that rips apart what God has joined together. You know, it used to be that our forefathers believed that marriage was for life and you stick, you stick with it. You stay with your spouse. You know, and they would say things like, well, I'm not getting a divorce, even though they're really upset with their husband or they're really unhappy with their wife, because marriage is permanent, they would say. And we appear to have lost that. And we think it's not permanent. I'll enter into it based on my desires, and I'll get out of it 
based on my desires. But according to Jesus, that is adultery. Now let's focus on the main point of verse 9. The main point of verse 9 is not the exception clause. We needed to think about that. But the main point of verse 9 is what is around it. Again, let's read it one more time. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. What does Jesus say illegitimate divorce and remarriage is? It is a violation of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. How so? We typically only think of adultery in terms of a person engaged in sexual infidelity with someone other than their spouse while they're yet married to them. That's true. But Jesus broadens it out and shows us the seventh commandment is bigger than that. The seventh commandment includes illegitimate divorce and remarriage. Why? Because according to God and his standard, in God's view, you're still married to that person. You entered into a covenant with that person and you illegitimately ripped apart what God had joined together, and now you engaging in a second marriage is adulterous. It is an act of adultery. What do we learn from that? We learn, first of all, that the standard is God's word. We may be permitted by American law to do a great number of things, but that doesn't make it right before God. And what a sad thing it would be for someone to pursue a divorce and then enter into a remarriage a second marriage or a third or what have you, and to say to themselves, well, the law says I can do it, and to then transfer that to God and say, well, it must be valid before God because it was valid in American jurisprudence. Wrong. American law is not the standard. God's word is the standard. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the standard, and that's what we must follow. Secondly, Jesus' teaching here indicates that we have a great number of adulterers running around in America today. How many divorces occur due to legitimate reasons? There are some. But how many of them occur for illegitimate reasons? A great number. And they're all guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. Now, what is the person to do who has wrongly divorced their spouse and entered into a second or third marriage or whatever. What are they to do? Are they to divorce their current spouse and try to go back to their first spouse? No, they are not. Now, I don't have time today to prove that to you. If you need more evidence for proving that, I'm happy to provide it later. But I believe it's clear that what they should do is repent of their sin, acknowledge their sin, repent of it, confess it to God, put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and be faithful to their current spouse. They may have messed up in the past. They may have sinned, and they did sin. They committed adultery by entering into another marriage. But there's forgiveness for that. Right? Sometimes... There are some, like in the Roman Catholic Church, for example, who will kind of brand a divorced person with a permanent mark. That this person got divorced and they are permanently stained by that. 
and they've remarried, and that just makes it worse. And so they're not welcome at communion, and they're kind of like second-class Christians. Is that how it works? No, that's not how it works. Why? Because there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, even sins related to this fundamental human relationship can be forgiven and cleansed. You can be cleansed and washed clean. So if you're here today and you've sinned in terms of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, if you haven't already repented and turned to Christ for forgiveness, you can do that today and be cleansed. You can be free. The slate can be wiped clean. If you're here today and you've already put your faith in Christ and you believe the gospel, the slate is wiped clean. You are forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation for any sin, including illegitimate divorce and remarriage. What's the remedy? The remedy for this type of sin is the same as any other kind of sin. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus in our place. Now, in verse 10, the the disciples respond to what Jesus has said. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. (laughs) That's an interesting response, isn't it? If this is how it is, then we would be better off staying out of marriage, staying out of entering into this covenant. If it is so restrictive, so binding, so serious, then we would be better off remaining single and staying out of the marriage relationship. Well, the disciples were Jewish men of the first century. What did Jewish men of the first century want? Uh, They wanted the the thinking and the practice of Hillel, the school of Hillel. Your wife's not as pretty as she once was? That's reason for divorce. She messed up dinner? That's reason for divorce. And almost anything that would provide a man with an out when he doesn't want his wife anymore, that would be appealing to people in the first century. And it would still be appealing to people, right? Why do people make prenuptial agreements? Most of the time, because they want an out. They want the back door unlocked. And they want to protect themselves in case they need to get out. Well, the disciples are here expressing their their sinfulness, their flawed, fallen nature. But let's think about it. Should, is marriage a bad thing? Because it is restrictive and binding. And because there aren't a hundred different legitimate grounds for divorce. Uh, some people see it that way, right? Some people see it as, as soon as you get married, the fun is over. Life has ended as you know it. And now you've got the old ball and chain. That's how some people see it. When I was young and when I was in the Marine Corps, you know, (laughs) when I was young and I was in the Marine Corps, um, more than one person expressed that sentiment to me. 
You say you sound like you're hesitating, Pastor Nick. I am hesitating a little bit. More than one peop- more than one person expressed that sentiment to me. Man, don't get married. Don't get married, man. You you do that, you're locked in. And you're locked in just with her. That's how some people see it. But does that mean that marriage is bad? No, it does not mean that. Is marriage serious? Is it restrictive and binding? Is it a covenant obligation that you must not break? Yes, it is, but it's still good. Think about all the things in life that are restrictive, that keep you from doing whatever you want, but they're good at the same time. Can you think of anything like that? I'm sure you can. I thought about a mountain road. You know, you're driving on a mountain road, and there's the precipice on this side. What do you want on the mountain road? You want a a restriction, right? You want a guardrail that if you are looking at your phone and not paying attention, oh, please don't do that. If you're looking at your phone and not paying attention or you're reaching the back seat to beat the kids or whatever it is you're doing and your car starts to go this way, what's going to happen? You're going to hit that guardrail and it's going to wake you up and it's going to get you back on the right track. That's a good thing. Nobody's like, it's so restrictive. It's so restricted to have these guardrails here. I really want to put my tires right right on the edge of the mountain. Nobody does that. You're thankful for that. And so in a similar way, we ought to be thankful that God has ordained a relationship that he says is covenantal, lifelong, seriously committed till death us do part. It's a good thing. It's good for you. Your sinful heart will tell you it's better out there to live out there in the world. I won't ask you how many of you have thought that at some point. But all of us have at some point been tempted to think it would be better for me to get out of this relationship with this woman that I'm married to so I could be free. But it's not true. It's not true. She is a blessing to you and you are a blessing to her. And that's the way God intended it. He wanted it to be that way. And so you need to stick it out. And what a sad thing when people don't stick it out. You know, a lot of times they hit a rough patch and they start looking for the exit when really you just need to keep going. You just need to stay the course. Have you ever had something in life that it got to a difficult point and you were tempted to give up? but you kept going and then you looked back on it and you were like, I'm glad I didn't give up. I'm glad I didn't quit. Hopefully you've had that kind of experience. Marriage is like that. She's not perfect. You're not perfect. You're both sinners. It's going to be hard at certain times. Don't quit. Don't give up on it. Keep going. It's meant to be lifelong. It's meant to be restrictive in a good way. Marriage is serious business. It's important for unmarried people to recognize the serious nature of the relationship they desire to enter. So if that's you and you're here today, or maybe you've got kids or grandkids or friends or family members who are thinking about marriage, and maybe you have an opportunity to influence them, to counsel them. 
How should you counsel them? Well, you should express to them just how serious it is. As my dad used to say to me, son, once you do it, that's it. And he was right. You make that choice. The choice is made. They say, oh, but in America I can, uh, I can get a divorce. No. How it's supposed to be is you choose her, she chooses you, you're going to stay in that relationship. That's why the old marriage vows and the language of the Book of Common Prayer say that you should not enter into marriage unadvisedly. You should have your eyes wide open. Now, that's hard to do because your eyes are open physically, but the romance is swirling all about you. And it will blind you. It will blind them, other people that we know, into thinking, man, this is always going to be great. You ever watch a film or a movie or read a book or something, and you're thinking, don't marry that guy. Don't marry that guy. Don't do it. Don't you do it. And then they do it, and you're like, I told you so. And a few pages later or a couple of scenes later in the movie, and they hate each other. And they want nothing more than to get out of this relationship. It's serious business, and we ought to take it seriously. You and I will be tested in various ways during our marriages, if you're married. You may have opportunities to commit adultery and break your marriage vows. You'll be tempted by thoughts that you would have been better off with someone else. Don't give in. Resist those temptations. How might you do that? Here's one of the things that you need to have in your heart, in your mind, and on your lips. Verse 6 of Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That ought to be the heartbeat of our marriage. I'm not going to tear apart the good thing that God has done here in uniting me with my spouse. You need to remember, we all need to remember that God was the one who joined us to our spouse and we must not separate his great work. We must remember that adultery is a sin that can be committed by illegitimate divorce and remarriage. Let these truths be the guardrails that protect you, that help you remain faithful and committed to your spouse. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage. We know that it's not for everyone, but we do know that it is for most, and it is ordained by you for our good. You said in the very beginning, it is not good for man to be alone, and how true that is. And so, I thank you today for my spouse. I thank you for Dina. Thank you for giving me such a wonderful partner who can find a virtuous wife for her worth is far above rubies. Dean is worth more than rubies, Lord. And I thank you for her. Lord, we go through difficult times in our, our marriages and we just ask that you would strengthen us, that you would help us not to look for a way out, but a way to stay in. We thank you for the, the guardrails that you've put around it to protect us and keep us into this blessed relationship, a relationship blessed by you. We know there are legitimate reasons for divorce and for remarriage. 
And we thank you, Father, that even when there is sin, that that sin can be forgiven and you can bring good where there was sin, that where sin abounded, grace can much more abound. And so we thank you for that. I know we have people here today who are divorced and remarried or maybe just divorced, and I ask that you would encourage them, encourage them, help them to remember and know that they are forgiven in Christ, that there is no condemnation for them, there is no permanent stain on their record that the blood of Christ cannot wash clean. And Lord, I ask that you would help every person here who is not yet married but will be married at some point in the future. Uh, we know we've got kids here today, and they're, they're, not, they're nowhere near ready for that. We know that. But one day they will. They'll grow up fast, and before we know it, these things will be discussed. And so we ask that you would protect them. We ask that through their moms and dads that you would model, that you would use their, their parents to show them what marriage should be, what it should look like, the covenant commitment that should be there. And we pray that you would prepare spouses for them, raise them up to be godly husbands and godly wives one day. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the blessings that you've given us in this fundamental human relationship. And we ask that you would continue to bless the marriages of this church, keep them strong, keep them healthy, where they are deficient and weak. Please bring repentance. Please bring change and restoration that they might be strong to the very end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you leave today, please receive the Lord's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.